All right. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Zephaniah chapter 1, please. Zephaniah chapter 1, as we've given an introduction completely, as all the other prophets, minor or major, helps us to kind of get a big, broad overview of the book and uh, to be able to break it down and to see the content of it and where exactly they fit. Um, it would be great if they just put everything in chronological order. It would be nice. There's a lot of problems, but you've got to just do the digging in that. But we come to the book of Zephaniah, which is one of the 12 minor prophets, and um, he is uh, the last pre-exilic prophet in order that we have in the Bible before the Babylonian captivity, which will be of 70 years. Um, this was prophesied by all the prophets that were going to go in. Jeremiah is a contemporary. He's very specific about it. Daniel uh, has um, been in uh, uh, Shushan, the palace. He went in the first uh, siege. Uh, God has placed him in the palace. Ezekiel who was trained for being the priest, never got to officiate that. He became a prophet of God. He was out with the people. And it's interesting to read both Jeremiah and Ezekiel at the same time so you get a good sense of what's going on as all this stuff is going by. you got false prophets in Jer Jer Jerusalem uh, telling Ezekiel to shut Ezekiel up. you got pr false prophets over there in Babylon with Ezekiel telling them to, to shut Jeremiah up and it's going back and forth and there's just a lot of stuff going on. As you know, Jeremiah suffered tremendously, and um, uh, but yet God promised him that nothing would happen to him and he would be okay, and that's exactly what happened to the very end when they were taken captive. And so, after Zephaniah, we will have uh, three left, as we have them in the order of our Bible. Uh, Haggai in 520 B.C. This is after the 70-year captivity. Zechariah, and also 520, and then Malachi, uh, the last one, um, 530. So remember, we're, we, we, you work backwards uh, as you, as you um, look at the numbers in that. Um, so the book of Zephaniah here opens up with an introduction of the prophecy. In verse 1, he says, The word of the Lord which came um, to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gadaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So the word of the Lord came, Yahweh, the covenant God to, of Israel, made himself known to Zephaniah, and as always, it is God who makes himself known to man. Man has no ability or capability of being able to invent this stuff, as he is so often accused by non-believers or scholarly people who are very educated, and they just don't believe in divine inspiration, so they just say that these guys were just like anybody else. They were just religious. And they just kind of just picked up a pen and kind of just started writing. Well, the chance factor of that, if you look at the specifics of, of the prophecies and the details that are given in the years before they happen, is so outlandish that um, either God wrote this stuff through them or, or these guys were just really, really lucky. One of the two. Uh, the Bible tells me that they were carried along by the Spirit of God. So when they wrote, they, some of them didn't even know what they wrote, who they were writing to. At other times, they knew exactly who they were writing to, Peter tells us. And so here, um, uh, it came to him in the Revelation again, uh, God's inspired word, Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Um, literally, God, God breathed or expired from God. Powerful for doctrine, instruction, correction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So it's important and imperative that you and I, if we are Christians, that we study the Word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, so that the Spirit of God can deal with my heart, and so that all that revelation of God goes in me, so the Holy Spirit can work it out through me, and it can transform me. So it's very important. In other words, people that say they're Christians, but they never have sat down and gone through the Bible or studied the Bible, that's, that's a, it's a contradiction. Uh, it's like saying that you are going to just be the most fit person health-wise and everything, but you're not going to eat good food or even eat at all. It's impossible. There's no way. Inspiration, again, is in Second Peter 1, 19 through 21, that the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but they spoke as the Holy Spirit carried them. And therefore, we have a great confidence that what we have before us is God's inerrant and infallible word. 
And so that uh, every jot and tittle, as Jesus says, will be fulfilled. And so Jesus gave uh, a very high praise to the inerrancy and infallibility of God's word. He mentions Adam. He mentions Noah. He mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. So he mentions people. He mentions Daniel. He mentions people that the critics, even in the um, higher criticism of the seminaries, deny themselves. But Jesus is the greatest authority. So um, sometimes you have to make a decision between the words of Jesus or a Ph.D. I'll go with Jesus every day. And so really, uh, it's hands down. And so um, illumination comes through the Holy Spirit. So you have revelation through the Spirit of God. You have inspiration through the Spirit of God. But you also have illumination. And that's God. And he uses his word since it is his word and it's living. And it is absolute objective truth. It's not simply something to make you feel good. It's not subjective. It's not for your emotions. It's not for your, you know, your soulish aspect. It's to instruct you about the things of God and what pleases Him and all that. And therefore, the Holy Spirit turns that light on. He illuminates. He, he nails people who are listening to the gospel and they're not born again. And the Holy Spirit allows them to see their lostness, their, their guilt and uh, under God's wrath for the first time. And, and, and their ability to make a decision whether they want to be saved and repent or not. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Pastors can't do that. You cannot do that. No man, no woman can do that. All we can do is get people mad. But the Holy Spirit convicts. Now, the Holy Spirit makes it very clear to that person their need of salvation. But the Holy Spirit doesn't force the person to be saved. It is a choice. As I said this morning, you know, there's um, uh, God voted for you to go to heaven and Satan voted for you to go to hell. And you're the deciding vote. Where do you want to go? You get to choose. Okay? Because you have to respond to God. God always initiates, you respond. It's just real simple. And so, the man Zephaniah here, uh, his name means um, Yahweh hides, and very indicative of what uh, he's offering to those who will repent as he will hide them through this wrath in the way that he will see fit. Zephaniah gives us his lineage here of four generations, Cushai of his father, uh, Gadaliah his grandfather, Amariah his great-grandfather, and Hezekiah his great-great-grandfather who is and was the king of Israel. And so he gives us a very um, full genealogy in contrast to some others. We saw Habakkuk had nothing at all. Uh, so there's a sharp contrast. And yet the days of Josiah were the ones that he prophesied. And so um, that's when he received this prophecy. There's um, a lot of similarities with the things that are going on with Jeremiah. Uh, and you can see with him the idolatry, the uh, corruption of the leaders, priests, prophets, and everything. But um, usually uh, he is placed somewhere between 8, 636, 21, somewhere like that. The, the reign of Josiah was uh, 638 to 608. Um, and so um, the dates really are not important in terms of being exact. We can figure out when the kings were ruling like here. And so with the prophet somewhere in there, and because of the content, remember that Josiah had a great reform. So he could have been, though he doesn't mention it in there, so we're not sure. But somewhere in there. In verse 2, he says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the uh, stumbling blocks along with the wicked, I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. And so from verse 2 down to 13, we have what is commonly known and what it will be dressed directly as the day of the Lord. The scope of the day of the Lord is universal here, worldwide. So the prophet Zephaniah goes to the ultimate judgment of the whole world on the day of the Lord. Then he comes back to the, uh, the present situation of Judah that is going to be under the day of the Lord, the short term wise with the with the 70 year captivity and then he'll go out again and you'll see the difference he comes back and forth long term and short term um, God indicated four times that he will bring about the destruction by the phrase I will between verse 2 and 3 this is God's hand God's judgment uh, it is very easy to confirm that God judged the nations in the past because he gives the time of the Gentiles through Nebuchadnezzar he revealed who would be overthrowing who? 
In fact, he even gives the way how uh, Medo-Persia would overthrow Babylon through the Levy Gate, the Euphrates River. Um, Cyrus himself would uh, be the one and he would uh, bring, allow the Jews to come back. Very specific. And as we look to secular history, it happened exactly like that. So prophecy can be verified if it's been fulfilled or not. And so here, um, um, the extent is utterly consume everything. So it has to go beyond the, uh, the judgment that's coming to Judah, even though when the judgment did come, they did burn the city, the walls. Um, it was just devastated. And for 70 years, it was just desolate. Uh, the authority, again, is according to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Uh, we find phrases like this all the time. Even though the prophet is the instrument, the vessel is saying it. These are the words of God uh, through the prophet. In verse 3, um, he makes it very clear that um, the indication here for creation and everything, um, it's, it's complete destruction. And the word consume means to cease or to come to an end. And so once again, three times uh, between verse 2 and 3. And the affirmation is total destruction, giving the uh, particulars of man, beast, birds, fish, and stumbling block which is of the wicked, which most likely is idolatry, as this is one of the major things that was going on. Remember, the, the, the reign of Josiah um, was followed uh, after the reign of Manasseh. Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, when he was going to... Uh, God sent Isaiah to tell him to get his house in order, and he started crying like a little girl, and God gave him 15 extra years. And... Um, and as he did that, Manasseh was born during those 15 years. And he was the, one of the most wicked kings. He introduced all this idolatry, all this stuff. And so, much of the idolatry that went on due to Manasseh, and yet God forgave Manasseh, God restored Manasseh, an incredible miracle. Uh, even bringing him back um, to his throne. The authority again is, thus saith the Lord. Um, as, as we look at verse uh, 3 there. Now, in verse 4 through 6, we have the judgment against the sin of idolatry that um, defiled and polluted God's people. Um, he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from uh, this place, the names of the idolatrous priests, which uh, the pagan priests, he makes a distinction between the two. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetop, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom, those who have turned, their, turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquire of him. Now, the culprit is named by God here. I will stretch out my hand against Judah. Remember, the northern kingdom has gone into captivity already in 722. So this is almost 100 years, as if this is indeed um, 621, almost 100 years. And um, Judah is used as the head of the southern kingdom, but it's Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes. The other ten have gone to captivity. And Jerusalem is the capital of the kingdom, so he addresses Judah and Jerusalem through these three chapters. And, and yet Jerusalem is the most mentioned uh, name in the Bible, um, um, seven hundred. I think seventy-six times. I forget exactly. Something. Like, it's incredible. The closest is two hundred and sometimes Babylon. Those are the two major cities: Jerusalem and Babylon. No surprise. The Tower of Babel. Babylon began in rebellion, and then it's the last thing to be destroyed by God. And so, um, the severe judgment upon her was related to her measure of high privilege. And the measure of life she had received and she possessed about God. And the principle is very clear in Luke uh, chapter 12, 48. To those who much is given, much more is required. You as a parent do that to your children. People at, at work, at least they used to, hold you accountable. Now nobody can get fired because everybody gets bullied and everybody's entitled. And nothing gets done and everybody goes broke. So it's a whole different world that we're living in. But um, there used to be um, uh, work ethic. There used to be consequences. They used to be able to fire you because you were lazy. 
and entitled. And now uh, everybody lawyers up and everything else. And so um, absolutely nothing gets done except a waste of money and time. And so here again, Jerusalem, the high privilege, um, the severe judgment on her. Notice there in verse 4, the removal of every shrine of the altar, worship of Baal, which um, uh, would, would, would follow, uh, will cut off every tree of Baal or trace of Baal, um, the places. These were, again, the worship of the uh, Phoenicians and the Canaanites, supreme deity, fertility gods. All many of these gods were, um, were pagan. They, they dealt with the sexuality. And, uh, of course, they, 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 their perversion of, and their worship and all that, we couldn't even speak of it in mixed company. They were so lewd. And God forbade that always, but yet the people were infected and they just went that way. Um, the consort of Baal is Ashtoreth, and she was the uh, fertility goddess also, or Ashtar. There's different names for her. And uh, yet Jezebel introduces worship, and Ahab, her husband, in 1 Kings 18. Uh, remember that Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. Some of you were with us in our trip to Israel. We were up there in the Carmelite monastery, and uh, there's a statue of Elisha there with one of the heads of the prophets in his hand as he killed him there down the in the, uh, the stream. And so this was a constant um, source of pollution to the people of God. We have the same thing today with the corruption, the immorality, the pornography, all that goes on. Um, but nothing new under the sun is just progressive. When I used to work for Prana Market way back in the 60s, you know, they had Playboy, they had, you know, a few other magazines that they get delivered. And But um, the progression has gone, it's just so vulgar and everything else that, um, you know, and again, they always put them right in front of the stands where the kids can see them, right? And so um, we see that man really, um, if he doesn't have some kind of a God conscience, some kind of uh, moral uh, breaks, if you will, he'll just continue to go off the chart. The obliteration of any remembrance of those practicing the false worship of idolatry is given there. The priests um, and the priest, the pagan priests and the regular priests, the priests that were being corrupted and then the pagan priests that corrupted the, the Jewish priests. Um, they uh, worship the zodiac. As it says there in verse 4, the worship of the host of heaven on their housetops. And so in that area, that's where they spend much of their time in the evening or, you know, as a family or washing clothes or whatever it may be. They, some of them had little living quarters up on top. Uh, this is still done over there. And yet now they turn them into their little shrines of idolatry. And again, now they wouldn't go to temple, even though Jeremiah was sent to the temple the door of the temple and proclaim and rebuke them. Don't think that, uh, don't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these and God won't destroy it. It says God will destroy it. But here they have uh, uh, their own little shrine at home. You know, they just go up on the rooftop and they, they, um, they worship the zodiac and the planet for the direction and for wisdom and, and everything else. This still goes on today. Uh, you have a lot of people like that. Oprah is one of the greatest deceivers in the United States and she pumps out these... Uh, these uh, soothsayers and necromancers and, and spiritists through their books and makes a million millionaires overnight. And yet um, she clearly opposes the gospel. She clearly says that Jesus Christ is not the only way. And I just pray she repent before she dies because um, that's a pretty, charge, pretty heavy charge before God. Um, none of her money is going to help her before God. In fact, that's going to be the last note of this chapter. Money's not going to get you out of it. It just isn't. There's no way. And so, uh, Jeremiah prophesied at the same time, exposing the same practices in Jeremiah 19, 13, and 32, 29, and the other passages, as they did all this stuff. Now, the worshiping was also swear, taking oaths in the Lord, verse 5 there, but also swearing by Milcom. So, this is called syncretism, where um, people were saying, we worship Yahweh, we still worship him and we believe in him, but they would take practices of Molech or Milcom. Milcom's the same as Molech. Um, he's the god of the Ammonites. 
uh, or other religions or other beliefs or, or the occult and you bring them under the umbrella of the worship of Yahweh and you say, I still worship Yahweh. Well, that's syncretism. Okay? The Catholic Church does that all the time. As long as you bow to the Catholic Church, you can worship whatever you want. In Mexico, you can be a witch doctor. You can be as long as you bow to the Catholic Church, you're in. You know what I mean? And as long as you have a priest before you die, you're in. You know what I mean? Syncretism. You know? No big deal. Um, in fact, Manasseh allowed his children to pass through the fire. He offered his own children to Moloch in Second Kings twenty-one six. Now stop and think about Manasseh. You think a little bit that uh, God forgave him and God restored him. And yet he brought such destruction to the nation of Israel, the worst king, worse than all the nations, Kings tells us, 21.6. And God forgave him and restored him, and he offered his own children. How did he live with himself? Only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. And it's the same today. Whatever you've gone through, God is sufficient for your life. As you look to him, as he forgives you, as he cleanses you, and you keep your eyes on him and you go forward. God is able to do that. In our minds, we may say, I don't see how... It's none of your business. God is able to do that. You're you're assessing it from the human perspective. You're you're trusting your own intellect. You're trusting your human ability. You're not... you're, You're removing God from the equation. The whole thing about the gospel is that God is the main equation. The man and the woman is simply the vessel. It is God who is working. And yet we know that he doesn't work apart from our yielding. He doesn't force us. But as we study and we pray and we wait upon him and we walk in obedience, we see the benefit of trusting God, depending on him. So Second Kings um, 23.10, Jeremiah 23.10, you have also... The practice of Molech. Uh, by the way, it was prohibited in Leviticus 18.21 and other portions. So the nation of Israel understood and they were warned way all the time. In fact, God says, you know, the people of the land are being vomited out. And it will vomit you out if you are ensnared by their practices also. And if you look at the, the principle there, when, when a nation or a land or whatever it may be, a family or an individual begins to corrupt themselves so bad that their practices are so lewd, so immoral, so unethical, that it comes to a place where it's everything just melts down. It just, you can't exist. It just falls apart. And, and there are nations that we have in history that they were so corrupt that they just... Fell from within. Rome is a perfect example. We're seeing it in our own nation. And um, apart from God, there is no hope for the United States or any other nation. Only Jesus Christ can turn this thing around. And so it says also those who turn back from following the Lord. So in other words, you know, they, they, they knew God. They used to go to the temple. They had that relationship and through all this introduction of idolatry and all this corruption and everything else, they just they just didn't follow the Lord anymore. You know, they were sucked in. Ezekiel eight fifteen through eighteen and fourteen one through seven tells us as the elders come before Ezekiel to seek the Lord and says inquire of the Lord and and God says I know these guys' hearts they have idol in their hearts but I know what I will answer them according to their idols. Ezekiel fourteen four. Ooh. When people say, well, I'm, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian, but they're seeking other things, and they go to the Lord, the Lord's going to answer them according to their idols. He'll hand them over through their deception. People think that they can deceive God. Now, we can deceive each other, we can deceive ourselves, but we can't deceive God. It's impossible. Verse 7 through 9, the judgment of the royal court comes. He says, be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will uh, punish 
the princes of the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. Here now, notice the command to be silent and humble in the presence of the Lord is in their judgment that's coming upon them. In other words, they are so blasphemous, so corrupt, and the judgment of God is coming upon them that it should cause them to be silent and to be humbled. Habakkuk 2.20, he says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We should be in awe. The judgment was very near. Look at verse 7 there. For the day of the Lord, Yahweh, is at hand, indicating imminent and near. We talked about the nearness possibly this morning, that possibly 15 years. And it's not that long, and that goes very, very fast. The judgment was very near. And again, Amos, the prophet, you remember Amos as we went through him. Amos 5, 18 through 19, he speaks about the day of the Lord also. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? I w- it will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bite him. In other words, they are so corrupt, they have been so vile towards God, they have been so rebellious, and God has sent so many prophets, they have just grieved them, stoned them, and killed them. He says, no matter where you go, what you do, my judgment is going to fall upon you. They were all saying, oh, they are the day of the Lord. We're waiting for a wait. Don't you know it's a day of darkness, a day of gloom? It's not the day where God's going to pat you on the back. It's judgment. Look at verse 7. The reason being the Lord had prepared a sacrifice and invited his guests. The sacrifice is the nation of Judah. Their dinner. The guest is Babylon, the instrument of God. Again, you look at the long term wise, Babylon will be destroyed in Revelation 19 as the Lord returns. Eight, 17, commercial, religious Babylon 18. The Lord returns in the second coming, the battle of Armageddon. God's judgment has been poured out for the tribulation period. He comes to set up the kingdom. He comes to judge the nations. We'll see that in the next chapter. There's the judgment of the nations that we'll get into. Many of the prophets, major and minor prophets, have entire chapters or entire sections of judgment to the nations of the world. Not just to Israel. And he mentions Israel along with them because they were living like the pagans, so he includes them with the pagans. We see that in Amos. We see it here in the second chapter also when we get there. Now, God would punish the princes and the king's children. Notice in verse 8, probably not Josiah's because they were a little young. But whatever um, um, kingly descendant was there. And um, these princes and children of the king had allowed the pagans to influence them and to turn them from God. Here he, he puts his finger upon the dress. Now, is God legalistic? No. But God wanted them to be separate from the world. God didn't want them to be like the world. And so this fashion to be like the world is, is a heart problem. Nothing wrong with, with having the latest fashion or keeping yourself nice. Nothing wrong with that. Okay? But there's a way that you can dress yourself where you look just like the world. And you know, where a godly woman can dress where she's attractive. And then there's the same woman that she can dress and be seductive. There's a big difference. And so God makes it very, very clear. And this is the transformation that God does. All of us were in the world. We all understand the world. And God brings us out of the world. So we don't want to be or appear self-righteous. But we want to be wise and obedient to God. And there's good reason behind that. That we can see the repercussions of the uh, the world and people. And the way they interact and things that happen. And so it's just part of wisdom. So here he would judge them. And then he speaks about those who leap over the threshold in verse 9. This practice was uh, uh, to not provoke the gods 
who were guarding the house, as is pointed out in Dagon, uh, the god Dagon in 1 Samuel 5, 4 through 5. So in that context, it was to protect it. Here, the context is probably to rob the house. Okay? You leap in so you can go in and you can take everything that's in there. And so, again, um, two different contexts. And so he would judge all these individuals. Again, God is the one who's revealing all this. This is not Zephaniah. In verse 10 down to 13, you have the judgment of the merchants and the traders. 10, it says, And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Mektesh, for all the merchant people are cut down, all those who handle money are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in their complacency, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Therefore, conclusion, their goods shall become booty in their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but they shall not drink their wine. Pretty stern judgment that God brings upon them. Again, people always try to secure themselves with the money they have, with the houses they have, with whatever it is. And they say, well, I'll just, you know, hunker down and I'll just survive it. Listen, when God judges a person, when God judges a nation, when God judges the world, no one, no one escapes. And so here again in verse 10, God revealed the severe suffering in the judgment. On that day, verse 10 says, the sound uh, of lamentation, sorrow, wailing would be heard from the fish gate and wailing from the second quarter of the city. The fish gate is the gate of Damascus. If some of you were there with us, we saw right when we were at the, uh, at the garden tomb, you look behind you and it's right there, right in front of Golgotha. And um, it was the north, and it was um, the most vulnerable place of the city. The north was always, uh, um, Jerusalem was always attacked from the north. It's interesting, Ezekiel 38, 39, God will put his hooks in, in, in Russia's jaws, Gog and Magog, and pull her down from the north. The north is always a vulnerable area to the city. Um, the second quarter in the same region of the north, and it says on that day there would be a loud crashing from the hills. Um, there is the Mount of Olives and Mount Scopus uh, on, the, on the south side. But um, it's, Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains. There's others. Uh, Psalm 125.2 says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth forever. And so here again, the enemy would come in and circle them. And really what they would do in those days is they just block every gate, every road, and nobody can go in, nobody can go out, so they have to sit it out. And the main thing you did is you made sure you had a water source, and you have Hezekiah's tunnel that was pumped into the city, so they had water, but you've got to have food. And so the armies would just surround and just sit it out there and wait till the food was gone, and then pretty soon, you know, there comes people that are just... Uh, fighting each other and there's uh, riots and there's rioting and there's uh, robbing and there's murdering and even there was cannibalism, the eating of their own children, Jeremiah tells us. And again, all of this in judgment for their rejection and the rebellion against God. And uh, um, it's, it's an amazing, horrible thing as you read history and the things and atrocities that men commit. Um, when a civil society goes rogue and uh, becomes lawless. Um, God help us if everything, anything ever breaks out in these cities of the, of the United States, the big cities. It will be one of the most horrible things that America will ever experience. And yet we're giving uh, and seeing the, um, the um, lawlessness of um, the politicians that are really encouraging it to an extent and bringing it about. And so um, we just have to just trust the Lord and just depend upon Him. 
Um, in verse um, 11 there, God calls the merchants to wail at the loss of their livelihood. Look at verse 11. The word maktesh or means mortar or a deep hollow. To indicate a valley in the area, this area is the area of the marketplace, um, most likely the Cheese Valley. Um, and there used to be a bridge. Those of you, again, that were with us in Jerusalem were in the Cheese Valley. If you go up the stairs to the cafeteria or the coffee shop, to the right when you get up there, you will see a picture of a bunch of uh, huge stones, piles of them. They're right there in the very same place today that the Romans cast over the, the, the wailing wall from the temple. And they're still there. They were discovered. And that's the Cheesemaker Valley. And right above the, the south corner, you have the pinnacle of the temple. And, and, and there you have um, Robinson's Arch. And there would be a bridge from there over to the upper city where all the uh, um, Pharisees and all that, all the religious wealthy people were. And most likely, this is the area of the cheese belly. And again, he is bringing judgment on their business, on their money-making. Everything that they trusted in, God is removing. We look at what God has done to the United States financially. Yes, he has used certain men. But it's God who's bringing judgment. We see what's happened to the stock market. You used to have the rule of 72. 72, the rule of 72 was that every seven years your portfolio would double. Not after 208. That'll never happen again. And so you see God shaking things up. We know that we're headed for a one world government, a one world bank. And so therefore the economies of the world will be brought down. And so as we look at these things, we should lift our head and know that our redemption is nearer than when we first believed. And I offer you not a hopeless hope. I offer you a glorious hope, the soon return of Jesus Christ, as he says. So we need to make sure that we're light and that we're an example and that we're looking up and that we're ready for him to come for his church. And while we're here, we're about our father's business to pull people out of the fire and to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not go hide in a cave or anything else. God will take care of all that. And so here in verse 12, God on that day searches out all the guilty people. God at that time would search Jerusalem with a lamp indicating no one would escape. And God would punish the men who had become corrupt and indifferent. Look at verse 12. Settle in complacency indicates that practice of pouring wine, as I shared this morning, where you would pour from vessel to vessel. And the reason you would do that is to refine it, make it pure, and to remove some of the dredge and all the, um, the, the settlings that are on it. And therefore, you would get a pure wine that tastes good. If you leave them in there, they taint the wine and they make it bitter. And it tastes of itself. This is a great imagery for these men who have settled in their corruption, and they're indifferent. Doesn't bother them. Ah, it's okay. God doesn't care. In fact, um, um, their words um, are quoted to us. Um, they say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. They're in verse 12. Wow. You have kind of the same mentality today with the postmodern emergent church. As pastors cuss from the pulpit willfully and purposely as they are very vivid in their teaching when they don't need to and they're vulgar. As they unabashedly declare that they have beer bashes with their elders. They're redefining the church, redefining holiness, redefining a Christian. And so we must always drop the plumb line, the Bible, the scriptures, is the plumb line. And when it's not in line with the scriptures, then we should not go along with anything. It's not my opinion. It's not because I'm self-righteous. It's because God is holy. And he makes it very clear that we are to be holy. We are not perfectly holy as he is, but we are holy compared to what we used to be by his grace. 
And when we fall short, we ask him to forgive us. We get back on track. And he is more than sufficient. And so we look to him for all that. Verse 13. God um, proclaimed the consequences of such a life, a conclusion. All their material things would become spoiled. The word booty means different things. It doesn't mean what kids call it today. Booty is spoiled. All those spoils of war. That what you take. And Babylon would take everything from them. If you look at the, uh, and you read the um, specifics of uh, uh, Jeremiah chapter uh, 50, 51, 52, and how they cut up the pillars in the temple and they carried off the gold, the silver, all of those things. Uh, That's what wars are for. The winner takes the spoils. It just sacks the city. Takes it all. Takes land. All their houses became desolate. They shall build houses, but not live in them. Wow. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. In other passages and in the law, God promises you will marry a wife, but someone else will lay with her. Wow. All because they turned their back on God. And so God, in his love for Israel, warned Israel, but Israel didn't pay heed. They thought that they were the exception. They thought that they were beyond it. They thought that it won't happen to us. This is the mentality that's going on today. In spite of all that's going on in the world and our country, the leaders and the educators are teaching and indoctrinating people in an unreal world. It's a very dangerous world what's going on. They're they're telling everybody, everything's okay. Wow. Well, we as Christians should be the first to know that everything's not okay. So we look to the Lord for wisdom. We speak truth. Again, we're not doomsday prophets. We offer the greatest hope, the soon return of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, down to 18, you have the nature of the day of the Lord. 14, it says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty man shall cry out. That day is a, whole, is, is a day of wrath. A day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Wow. These are terms that are used throughout the Old Testament for that great day of God's wrath poured on the world. Now it is used in terms of short term and long term. Here he deals with Judah in the short term. Judgment that's coming, um, 10, 15 years or so to begin. And then also the long term is the seven-year tribulation. Now, let me say, by way of footnote, that you have to be careful today. There seems to be a growing number of people that are trying to convince people that there is no rapture. That it's a recent doctrine. That it was started by a woman and that... It's not in the Bible. Let me first rebuke those people and anybody who believes that. The Bible is very, very clear that God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. He will keep us from the hour, Revelation 3, 10. And Jesus says, pray and watch that you'll be worthy to stand before the Son of Man and escape all these things. Luke 21. 36. And so I don't know where they're getting their doctrine. The first person to mention the rapture is Jesus Christ in John 14, 1 through 3. Stop being afraid. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many abiding places or mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And if I go, I go to prepare a place where where I am there, you may be also. And I will come back, listen, and receive you to myself. That where I am, 
there you may be also. You must make the distinction between Jesus Christ coming to receive us to himself, the rapture, and coming back with him to set up the kingdom. First Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 17. He gathers us to himself. We meet him in the cloud. Second Thessalonians, we come back with him to set up the kingdom after the battle of Armageddon. Real simple, okay? And when you go through Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21, you must keep those things very distinct. You must read very careful. You must stay on track like a good hound dog and not be distracted. Stay on course, and you'll see exactly what it's saying, the time is saying, the people he's addressing. Very, very clear. And so, um, I'm not looking for Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. And so, the day of judgment, short term for Judah, again, long term, the seven year. Um, this day is called the great day of the Lord due to the righteous judgment over his people first, short term, and then, of course, long term. Um, Joel, we've seen Joel, is known as the prophet of the day of the Lord, chapter 115, 2 1, 2 11, 31, 3 14, 3 18, Malachi 4 5, and many, many others. Just punching on your computer the day of the Lord, you'll get all kinds. <laughs> You know, computers make us think we're so smart, but we're really not that smart. We just know how to gather information. I, I think of, of Strong's Concordance, or Young's, or Crudence. Strong for the strong, Crudence for the crude, and Young for the young. Um, these guys didn't have computers. I mean, they categorize all these things by words, by numbers. The meticulous going through all 66 books, the years that they put into it. They didn't have Bible programs. <laughs> None of that stuff. It's amazing. I just so um, appreciate all their work that they've done. I love books. I I have books. I, I use my computer to type it out and to record it, but I, I use books. I, I, I can't get behind Bible programs or anything. It's just, it's just not my brain. I mean, it's just the way it is. But um, here again, the day is uh, said to be near two times for emphasis and affirming by the fact that um, it would come quickly or suddenly in the verse 14. The sound is on, uh, on the day of the Lord that would be bitter cry. Notice in verse 14 there. Not for women and children, but rather the mighty men. The ones who are strong. In other words, when judgment falls, the strongest will be wailing. A terrible day. Verse 15 the day of great despair, a day of wrath, a day of reckoning. Verse 15, the beginning, the day of trouble, distress, a day of um, uh, desperation. Uh, the day of devastation and desolation is a day of losing everything. The day of darkness and gloominess, a day of paying the high price for their sin. You see, everybody just lives it up. And then all of a sudden, everything adds up. And everything catches up. And then all of a sudden, you see some of these uh, programs on TV like cops and stuff like that. And these guys do horrific crime. They take somebody's brand new car that a person has worked so hard to get and they just, you know, um, break into it and drive it off and crash it. And they don't think even twice, Blink. And then the cops get them. They cry like little girls. Amazing. Amazing to me. A day of clouds and thick darkness is a day of hopelessness. Verse 16, a day of warning the entire nation, a day of, um, of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. The trumpet was a form of alarm coming judgment by the hand of Babylon this time. The fortified cities, the towers um, had the vantage point to be able to see far, to see the enemy coming. But the judgment would fall upon them. They would be 
virtually useless. All the adjectives are negatives. They're found throughout the Old Testament as well as the New for the day of the Lord. Indignation, day of judgment, day of gloom, darkness, wailing, lamentation. Verse 17, the righteous judgment of God is executed. I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuge. If you look at the scriptures and you look at God's words and you look at his words of judgment, um, God does not mince words and God is very adamant. And uh, sometimes people accuse God of being unfair and cruel. But if you look at everything in his context and the high privilege that men and women have had and all that he's taught them and all that he's done for them and then when they turn their back on him and knowing and realizing that he's the epitome of holiness and that he is the creator of every person who walks upon the face of the earth and that he has given to every man, woman and child a conscience and what we do with that conscience will determine whether we believe that there is a creator before us or not. And if we discard that conscience and we start building our own concept of God or our lack of God, then God holds us responsible for doing away with what he provided for us, even the atonement. And so God judges individuals because he knows the heart. He knows everything that we think. He knows everything we do. And he knows exactly where we're at. He doesn't need any reports of information <laughs> he doesn't need anything at all and so in 17 I will bring disaster upon men he's the judge the consequences and they shall walk like blind men people will be blinded over their own sinfulness and they will be handed over to the lie the antichrist in 2nd Thessalonians 2 a through 12 Revelation 9, 20 through 21. And because people get hard and they become corrupt, they, God hands them over to that lie. Blindness was one of the judgments under the curses in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and many other things. The reason, notice in verse 17, is because they have sinned against the Lord. Now we sin with each other. We sin against each other. But the ultimate sin with and against each other is against God. Because we are creating the image and the likeness of God. And God has given to us a general revelation of creation, conscience, and history. That with that we're without excuse, Roman 1 says. Then he's given us special revelation, the gospel, his word. And therefore, there's not a person who has any legitimate excuse to say, I never knew, especially as an American. Absolutely not. Every monument in Washington has a scripture. If you went to school before the 70s, you were taught U.S. history and the founding fathers. You understand the Constitution. You understand the Bill of Rights, the Federalist Papers. You understand those things. Now it's pure indoctrination. And so everything becomes anti-constitutional, anti-American. We're the bad guys. And so the indoctrination has come home now. And so all of a sudden, we don't have a nation. We have a bunch of people that want to transform the nation into something much like Europe and the other nations. My solution is, if you want Europe, go to Europe. Leave America alone. Go to Europe. Send me a postcard. Notice the punishment. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuge. Wow. Pretty severe. But sin is severe. Sin kills, sin destroys. Every one of us know that. Every one of us 
were in sin before we came to Christ. Every one of us saw the destruction of people, young ladies, young men, through alcohol, through drugs, through anger, through sex. Keep the list going. Tragically. And it grieves God. Verse 18, you have the inability to pay tribute to escape the judgment. Because they, I could see the people, and well, you know, we've got this, we've got that, we'll be able to buy our way out, you know. And many of the old kings, they would give tribute to a nation, and they would give them a loan. Leave them alone, and they would just pay tribute every so often. He says, not this time. Verse 18, he says, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. His jealousy is different than yours and mine. My jealousy and yours is because you have something I want. God's jealousy is because he knows he's the best thing for me. Big difference. I'm looking out for my own benefit. He's looking out for my benefit. So his jealousy is pure. It's for my good. For he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. Wow. Money does not solve every problem. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. A lot of people have a lot of money. And they get out of things all the time. They have parking tickets, speeding tickets. They don't care. They just pay it. They have the money. It doesn't hurt them. But sooner or later, they write a check they can't cash. It catches up with them. They're entitled. So they think they can do what they want. Ezekiel 7.19 says, They will throw their silver into the streets, and their gold will be like refuge. <laughs> their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the days of the wrath of the Lord. They will not satisfy their soul nor fill their stomachs because it became their stumbling block of iniquity. Wow, Ezekiel's in Babylon. He's talking about Jerusalem. Same people Jeremiah's talking about. Same people Zephaniah's talking about. Wow. The holiness of God should be vindicated and would be vindicated. But the whole land will be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. Hmm. The captivity would be total. For he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. You know the story. Everybody went into captivity. 70 years. They forgot their language. When Nehemiah and Ezra come back, they have to speak to them again in Aramaic and interpret for them. You know, when Israel came back as a nation in 1948, they revived their language. Hebrew was a dead language. It's a, a live language now, again. Amazing parallels. And so, first chapter of Zephaniah. God is on the throne. He is not intimidated by man. He is not lost for words or plans. And he is not uh, um, afraid of anything. And we're right on schedule as you look to the world, as you look to our nation, as you look to the things that are going on in your own life. Then you should be able to see the sign of the times. And uh, that we live accordingly. And we encourage one another. And pray for one another. And always be gathering together as a church. That we might see how God would use us to minister the gospel to those who would come here. Or those that God will send us to. That they might be saved. Father, thank you for your grace and love your goodness. We love you. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for tonight. And we pray for those that are here over the internet. They don't know you, Lord. They would call on your name. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you believe Jesus is God who became man and died for your sins, you can call on him right now. 
and he will save you. Right where you sit, or maybe you're over the internet. You don't need us. All you need to do is ask him to forgive you, to save you from your sin, and he will do that. This is the prayer, your prayer to him if you want to be born again. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.